Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The wisdom of Proverbs teaches us how we will eat the fruit of our words, whether our words are good or bad. Now, this truth can be particularly biting for the wife with a husband who does not fulfill God's mandate to lead her well. She is in a tension, and her temptation is to be critical. She needs God's grace to help her to live a submitted life that overcomes his deficiencies while not disparaging him with her words. And as you might imagine, that is a tall order. But I want you to know that there is grace for this. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. I want to talk about one of the more challenging issues that can happen between a man and a woman. I've titled this The Power of the Critical Wife. Now, this is something that we all have fallen into this trap because when we are offended, when people are not doing what they should be doing, especially when it affects us, well, it is really easy to to not be quick to hear and slow to speak. In fact, James told us in 119, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to anger. Man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, James had a lot to say about the tongue. In fact, the third chapter of his little letter is devoted to it. But before we get into a fuller treatment about this little member that you will read about in James 3, he did give us some insight at the beginning of his letter, and I just read that to you. He said that a person's anger does not produce a righteous lifestyle. And so if you want to see a righteous lifestyle produced in someone that you love, Well, sinful anger will not accomplish that, and the implication is quite clear. If you want someone to mature in Christ, sinful anger is not how you get there, no matter what they did to you. For example, Mabel wants Biff to be a good and considerate husband. Now, that is a wonderful desire. In fact, I trust that every loving wife would want their husband to be considerate, among many other things. Of course, her biblical desire does not negate her biblical duty. Sometimes, in order to accomplish the things that we want to see in other people, well, there is a requirement on us to cooperate with God in helping them to get to that place. And so Mabel must recognize her responsibility in Biff's ongoing discipleship. You see, she has a co-equal obligation in their one flesh conjugal adventure. His failures do not relieve Mabel of the admonition to lead well by displaying Christ in their home. Now, we all know that no one is permitted to sin in response to someone else's sin. But we also see this regularly. 
I mean, for example, in today's culture, someone legitimately sins or offends against another person, and the offended party does something reprehensible in retaliation to the person who offended them. All you have to do is to go on Twitter, which I do not recommend at all, but you will see it. Legitimate people who have been offended, somebody did something to them, and they retaliate in the most reprehensible ways. And we deplore and we decry these things, but too often we do similar things in our marriages. I mean, maybe we don't perceive our offenses in such light because many marriage mishaps are, they're not as consequentially devastating as our culture's violent retaliations. But in God's eyes, it's a different matter. There is no question that consequences vary. Any sin, big or small, puts Christ on the cross, and we have to remember that. It would be so easy to displace our sin because, hey, it was just a little sin, consequentially speaking, and that may be true. But the Father punished His Son for all of our lesser marital transgressions. Ignoring little offenses, especially those that roll off our tongues, would be a substantial marital mistake. But how easy is it to sin against our spouses with our words? Been there, done that. Been there, done that too many times. I am not sharing these things as one who is detached or above the fray. No, I have been in the fray too many times. I have sinned against my wife more than any other person in the world, and it has a lot to do with proximity and time. I am closer to her than anybody in the world, and I have, I have spent more time with her than, than any other person in the world. And so when you put two sinners together, two fallen people, even if they are in Christ, the chances of them sinning against each other, well, it's going to happen. And most often it happens with our words. And when they disappoint us, Our Adamic instincts override biblical common sense, and we're no longer quick to hear and slow to speak. We are rapid to speak, and we put our fingers in our ears as we pontificate because we have been offended, and that will not create the righteousness of God in anyone. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James could not be clearer. And so Mabel will have some serious and challenging heart work before she can position herself to help her husband. Biff is sinning against her. It is objective. It is offensive. We cannot overlook it. We cannot minimize it. We cannot pretend that it's not happening. Mabel cannot disregard what he's doing or her responsibility to assist. Think about it this way. Her body is rejecting her body. They are one flesh. It is a spiritual marital disease when part of our body attacks another part of our body. 
Maybe you remember what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5, where he talked about how can we hate our own bodies? Well, that is exactly what is going on. Biff is doing it to Mabel by his minor marital sins. And then, of course, Mabel is retaliating by doing it back to Biff. This is a disease in this one flesh body. Now, Paul gave us insight on how to cooperate with the Lord in the process of helping an offending person change. And so Mabel will have to employ some of Paul's wisdom, and he had a lot of it. For example, in Romans 2.4, Paul calls her to use the encouragement method to motivate him to change. He says, don't you know this? It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, and we want to emulate that in our human ways. We want to motivate them by grace, not motivating them by our sinful anger. And so, Paul, I call this the encouragement method. Now, the encouragement method does not mean that you overlook what they're doing wrong. It doesn't mean that you don't talk about the pink elephant romping around in the room, but there is a way of doing it. The encouragement approach would be a good start. And then in Ephesians 4.29... Paul appeals to her to use her tongue redemptively. The old English word is to edify. That means to build up her husband. Now, being an encourager and being an uplifter of a careless person is especially hard if the negligent person has been neglecting you for years. And this is a common story that we hear here at Life Over Coffee. And that is how it usually goes. I mean, most of my marriage counseling on this level, it happens after the marriage has been deteriorating for a decade or more. It's somewhat rare for a couple to ask for counseling after their first year or two just to tweak a few things that they see going south. I remember a number of years ago, I had two or three annual meetings. I know at least two. And the first time this couple called, they said, hey, everything is going swimmingly. There's nothing that we perceive going wrong, but we just want a checkup. And I'm looking at them like, you have, you have two heads. What's wrong with you people? And then the next year, they came along and said, we're doing well. Things are going nicely, but we would like to come in and just talk just to perceive. I mean, maybe we are missing something or not seeing something that is obvious to one, obvious to another, or maybe it's obvious to you and we're just blind to it. Now, that is biblical maturity for a young couple that is so rare, but that is exceptional. That's an anomaly. Most people don't come in after a year or two. Most marriages muddle along until someone just can't take it any longer. But by then, they are at the grenade launching stage, not the soft answer stage. Mabel has a tough job. The marriage has gone wrong for too long, and she needs to say something. And she does. She needs to say something. Again, I'm not I'm not a proponent of hiding sin under the carpet. Eventually, the carpet will become uh, so lumpy that it will be a trip hazard. You'll have to call Asha in to write new regs for walking across this carpet. I'm not that person. The question is not whether Mabel should critique and, cor- and correct her husband. She should. 
But the real question is, how should she do it? And I titled this, The Power of the Critical Wife. Her opportunity is where she will have to examine her criticisms and her corrections. What is motivating her to speak to Biff? Think about it this way. Jesus said that our words are the secondary focus, while the motivation of our words is the primary thing. He talked about this in Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever words march off her tongue, those words were generated. They were crafted. They were empowered in her heart. So she will have to address her heart motivations. I mean, the words are a secondary matter. Her words will be whatever her heart is. And so Mabel needs to examine her heart for Biff before she speaks to Biff. She must heed James's warning. A person's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. If anger is in her heart, it will assuredly come out of her mouth. Now, in another place, James gave insight on identifying anger when he said that you find anger's source, its cause, its motivation. You will find it in our passions, in our desires, in our coveting. That is James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, this happens when a person like Mabel blinds herself to her approach to her husband. She can want him to change so badly that she forgets how to approach him, especially when her ticking heart is ticked off. There is corruption in her excellent desire for a better marriage. And that is the complexity. She wants a good thing for her husband, but her passions, her coveting, her desires have outrun or overrun biblical norms. And so now there is this weird amalgamation of corrupted desires for a good thing. Our most destructive conversations can happen when we know that we are right. Mabel is right, and she knows she is right. Biff needs to change. I mean, we see this in our culture, too. So many things need to change, which can blind us to the wrongness of the methods that we employ to bring change. In Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, I want to focus on that word, friend. It is rare for adversaries to stop being adversaries. The most effective change occurs among friends. And right now, Mabel is not Biff's authentic friend. She is angry with him. Now, she might say something trite like, I love him, but I don't like him. I have heard that many times in counseling, and this is really deceptive semantics. It can soothe the conscience, but it can be devastating in the marriage. If Mabel does not perceive, and if she does not change her attitude toward her husband, her words will not produce righteousness in him. The anger of man will not produce righteousness. She must first plant the gospel firmly in her mind. It would be easy for her to enter the why me mode 
Have you ever done that? Have you ever flipped the switch to the why me mode? It may sound something like this. Why should I be the one to change first when he has been such a jerk for so long? Now, that is a valid complaint. I hear you. But there is only one correct answer. God calls you, God calls me to carry our crosses as we follow the example of Jesus. And don't forget, I mean, it was our sin that put him on Adam's tree. He had to make the first move because we could not move. I mean, that's the point of Ephesians 2.1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it says later, but God had mercy. We couldn't move. We were dead. Dead people don't move. Christ, the offended one, reached out to us, the offenders. It is amazing grace. Someone in this marriage will have to set aside their preferences for the greater good of the marriage. Now, to ask Biff to be the mature one when he has not shown any signs of maturity for a decade or more, that's a little bit unrealistic. I'm not giving him a pass. I'm just speaking to the reality of the situation. I mean, it would be nice if Biff owned it and got a clue and acted out a sin plan and said, hey, I'm going to be the mature one in this marriage. But you know, that's not realistic. I mean, it would be great if he suddenly got a clue. It didn't occur to me. I mean, I didn't get a clue, and I needed Christ to act upon me. By the way, it didn't happen to you either. You didn't act first. Christ acted upon you. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I'm using this as an analogy that, that Biff is, is, is stuck in his, his stupor of sin, It probably won't happen with Biff. And so it will be on Mabel to be like Christ, to make the first move, to cooperate with God, to be the mature one in this couple as she moves in this cooperation with God to help restore the marriage. She will have to be the Christ-like leader. She'll have to die to herself First, And as I said in the very beginning, this is a tall, it is a tall order. Mabel must take her heart to task regarding her affection for Biff. Now, this will be the first thing that she will have to do. She must plead with God to give her affection for her annoying husband. She must let the gospel be her guide. Jesus loved annoying Mabel so much that he died for her. Jesus loved us, the annoying ones, so much that he died for us. And so as she is begging God to change her hurt heart, she must find a better place to begin helping Bill. Now, she will not she will likely not be able to start with her most grave disappointment. In Biff. I mean, too often a spouse will bring up her biggest annoyance about the marriage. And so as she's growing in her affection for God, I would recommend that she start with a lesser offense rather than the big one that they have been stumbling, stumbling over for years. Usually that is too much truth for the historically proven, unchanging person to respond to so he can change. I mean, maybe you could think about it like debt reduction. 
It's typically more effective to start with smaller debts before you tackle the larger ones. If Biff is mature, uh, immature rather, and if he has a proven record of not changing, then bringing up his most challenging sin is probably a bad idea. Now, I'm not talking about sins like adultery or other devastating addictive behaviors. I mean, if he is in that kind of sin, you've got to you've got to pick up the red telephone and you've got to call someone. You have to hit the alarm. You cannot ignore that. But I'm talking about overlookable things like passivity poor communication habits, inability to prioritize Biff's life, messiness, not considering Mabel, lack of passion for Jesus, or fear-motivated inhibitions. Newly married couples often make this mistake. Now that they are married, they anticipate how the other spouse will be all they had dreamed of them being. The boyfriend wooed her off her feet and she floated down the aisle. That should be the beginning of the happily ever after storyline. Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, most of these marriages enter marriage without a sin plan. And as the little disappointments mount, they develop poor ways of dealing with them until they become Biff and Mabel. Biff did not stop being a work in progress on his wedding day, and neither did Mabel. After the marital dust settled, they should have seen their joint brokenness and the need for ongoing mutual care. It's like the marriage dust settled on their wedding day, but it settled in their eyes, blinding them. And so Mabel will have to set aside as much as she possibly can, what's wrong with Biff. And she will have to help him grow. These areas of growth must be reachable goals. Mabel must be his caring and courageous cheerleader. With enough work, some of the more significant flaws in Biff's life may change in a few years. She'll have to guard against mapping her personality, her gifts, her strengths, her expectations over Biff's capacities and demand that he work through those things the way that she has. I mean, one of the worst mistakes a spouse can make is comparing her life with his. You cannot mandate the things you've overcome in a lifetime, in a decade, or the things that you don't struggle with onto another person for their emulation. We all battle differently. We're all shaped differently. We all grow and change individually, uniquely. Some people do change with courageous, compassionate, and competent care. Other folks never transform. Fallen people helping fallen people change can be a mess, and it never goes how you hoped or how you planned. The key to helping a fallen person mature in Christ is addressing your fallenness first. If you neglect your weaknesses or if you neglect your sin patterns, you'll become impatient with the other person who is not doing what you ask them to do. I mean, this approach to soul care, it will disqualify you from cooperating with the Lord to produce righteousness in the person that you long to see change. 
I've titled this, The Power of the Critical Wife. Now, if you want to read it, watch, or listen, just go to lifeovercoffee.com. You can look for the words, just search. Put critical wife in the search box, and it will come up for you. Now, I realize what I'm saying is challenging because I'm no different from you. I have people with whom I long to see change, which rarely happens as fast or to the degree in which I wish. And so I have some questions that have helped me. As I was writing this out, I was working through these questions personally. I was writing them to me as, as all of my content is written to and about me. These are my personal devotions, basically, that I put online is how I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And so I like to have questions so that I can continue to ponder and reflect upon the things that I've just read to help me to change. And so I have some questions that help me to calibrate my heart and to guard my tongue as I think about cooperating with the Lord in the transformation of those with whom I love. Now, perhaps you have an unchanging spouse. Maybe you have another loved one. Would you would you consider these questions? I mean, it would be great if you would share these questions with a friend, work through them together as you talk about the content that I've just shared with you. All right, so let's work through the questions and then we will wrap up. Number one, do you have genuine affection for your spouse? You remember I was talking about before you correct a person, they need to know that you care for them. And that's what I mean by genuine affection that you love them and you like them. If you don't, then you have to begin here. It's not appropriate to correct someone with whom you do not have affection for, someone that you do not like. They will feel it. You cannot hide it. You may think you have hidden it. Perhaps you have been corrected that way by someone, and even though they may have thought they had disguised their dislike for you, well, it didn't pass the smell test. I mean, you might not be able to articulate it clearly, but you could see it. All the signs were there. Now, you say, well, man, it would be hard to have affection for this person, for my Biff. Maybe the only kind of affection that you can muster up is that they are a fellow image bearer. That's how I think about a lot of the celebrities or politicians in our culture. I don't care for them. I don't care for their politics. I don't care for their attitudes. As an example... But I have to think about that, that, that if I'm going to think about them, I need to have some modicum of affection for them. And the thing that helps me to calibrate my mind is that they are a fellow image bearer. I don't like what they do. I don't like what they say. I don't like who they follow. I don't like what they believe. But they are a fellow image bearer. And if that is all that you can muster up for the person who annoys you, then muster that up. Because you can't correct someone that you don't have even a modicum of affection for. And so you do you have affection for that annoying person in your life? If you don't, that's the place where you have to start. Number two, can you set aside your desires while helping your spouse become a better person? Have you considered how the only way you can get your good desire is to die to that desire first? which you must do if you want to if you want to work with God to restore your spouse in a spirit of gentleness 
There is a sequence here. You can't have your desire first, and then maybe I'll come along later and and uh, help this person change. Maybe. I mean, it would be like going to your job and say, pay me first and I will work later. That's not how it works. Sometimes we have to set aside the reward and we have to do the work. And we have to do it in this case, too. Jesus set aside and then he poured himself into our lives. He will receive the work of his hands. Number three, how is the gospel affecting your heart regarding the questions that I've just asked you? Now, again, I'm thinking about how Christ set aside his preferences to redeem us. We must model the gospel at this point if we hope to see anyone change. We have to be like Christ. And there is a there is a cross-carrying perspective here that you can hear loud, loud and clear. Number four, where is the best place to begin with your spouse, even though it's not the main thing that you want him to change? I talked about debt reduction. Maybe it would be wise to start with the smallest debt first, because if this person has no habit, no motivation, they, they have no discipline to be able to change, if you bring the biggest thing in their life, if you bring it up, uh, they will have a harder time. I mean, go for the little wins in the beginning, and you could work up to the bigger ones. Number five, is your encouragement of Biff more evident to him than your critique of him? Now, if it's not, you have to change this. And so when he hears you, what does he hear most of the time? I'm talking about the encouragement approach. And when I say encouragement, I'm not talking about just encouraging him all the time and never bring any corrective care in his life, but it has to be proportional. If you are primarily correcting him at every turn, that is called the nagging wife. That is the power of the critical wife. And so we want to make sure that our encouragement of the people that we want to see change happens more often than our critique of them. Number six, will you who will walk with you as you spend the rest of your life discipling your husband? Now, again, a husband should be doing this to his wife as well. You never want to stop discipling your husband. I mean, well, you can stop when he is entirely sanctified, meaning that he will never be perfect until he meets Jesus. And so it is the responsibility of each spouse to mutually disciple each other for the rest of their lives. And sometimes you need someone to walk with you as you do this. Now, if, if it's in a situation like Mabel and Biff here, Mabel wants to find pers a person of the same gender to walk with her. Ideally, it would be good to have another couple that you're meeting with. You four meeting together, and you're spurring one another on to love and good works. But maybe in the beginning, uh, she needs a friend, a female who can walk with her, and then hopefully you get to the place where all four of you can collectively and reciprocally meet together to spur one another on. I've titled this The Power of the Critical Wife. You can go to thelifeovercoffee.com, and you can read it. You can watch it. 
You can listen to it, and I would just appeal to you to please share it with with anyone. You can copy the URL and just send it as a link to someone. You can roll down to the bottom of the article. There is a print button at the bottom of the article, and you can print it off. Go over to lifeovercoffee.com and uh, check it out, and then find someone. Let's talk about this. And if you're doing the work of discipleship, maybe you can use this somewhat as a template uh, for that critical wife who's struggling uh, with the biff in her life. Now, we have courses at lifeovercoffee.com. One of the courses is No More Fear. It is a course that I developed on overcoming the fear of man. When the only opinion in the room that manages you is God's good opinion of you, then you are as free as you can possibly be. But some people are managed and manipulated by other people. We crave their approval. We crave their acceptance and and we are in bondage to them because we seek their approval, so we are not free. The only way that we can be free is by resting in God's good, favorable opinion of us. And now this course, No More Fear, walks you through that, and it's 100% online, so you can you can do it anywhere you want, at your leisure, at your pace. We've had quite a few people who are taking this course, and the feedback has been wonderful. And if you want to learn about it, just go to uh, lifeovercoffee.com, click on the Courses button, and you can learn learn about No More Fear, and then if there's anything else we can help you with, just hit the contact button in the footer on any page of the website and let us know, and we would love to serve you. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.